You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Milton Lawson, it's good to see you again. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience and the larger meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv audience. This is the Sophia program uh, available on uh, streaming video and audio podcast. Uh, I'm Daniel Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State, and I uh, edit and publish the, uh, an online magazine called The Electric Agora. I'm here once again, uh, very, very ha- pleased to be here again with Milton Lawson. Milton, why don't you, uh, even though you've been on quite a, quite a number of times with both Ari and I, why don't you just say if, a few things just to remind everyone in the audience who you are and uh, what, sort of pro- what sorts of things you do. Sure, thanks. Uh, Milton Lawson, a comic book writer based out of Houston, Texas, home of the cheating uh, uh, Houston Astros uh, that Bob Wright has discussed at length in a recent episode of BloggingHeads.tv. I'll try not to go into that and cry on camera. Um, and I uh, was a former video editor for Blogging Heads, and uh, I've got some comics coming this year. Milton, no, I never asked you this. Um, I'm just curious. Um, what's your education background? In other words, did you were you educated in the things you're doing, or did you get a degree in something entirely different? And then, and this is sort of stuff that you do just on the basis of your own skill, talent, etc. Yeah, it's been a very circuitous route. I went into the University of Houston as a physics major. Oh wow! And I was very interested in science. And uh, quantum physics, the equations there just totally kicked my butt. So I, I, I rapidly changed into radio, television, and film, which changed into journalism. And so I had a sort of a – I've got this uh, background of both technical and creative, and I try to synthesize those into a lot of different things. And that's how I became involved in blogging heads. Um, I did a lot of web work and editing, and a little bit of the journalism stuff, but for the most part, um, I I was uh, doing the technical stuff. And what about the art? And all the art art and art designing that you do? Well, that's... That's all all self-taught? That's all... I was... I was lucky enough to be employed in the very beginning of the dot-com boom, and was with one of the... uh, best uh, sort of ground up little design shops in Houston that took on big clients back when there was, there were no service providers to do that sort of stuff. So I learned alongside a lot of really talented people. Like a lot of the design stuff I learned was from people that were from the electronic music and rave community, you know, cause they learned all that stuff to create their flyers and promote their events. And they just started making money off of it, doing corporate work. Very interesting. Um, so today we're going to discuss two films that might to some people seem completely unrelated, um, but they are both distinguished by having received not a single Oscar nomination. Um, and those two films are um, Uncut Gems and uh, uh, my, name is, uh, my Name is Dolomite. Um, uh, Dolomite is my name, excuse me. Right, yeah, I make that um, mistake all the time. The new, the new, the new uh, Eddie Murphy film, of course, the Uncut Gems is the new Adam Sandler film. We're going to discuss Uncut Gems first. Um, obviously, for both films, this is going to be filled with spoilers. And um, and so if people haven't seen either of these films yet, I, I really do strongly recommend both of them. I think Milton, Milton uh, likes them both, too. 
but we're not really here to give a review, but more analysis and maybe some discussion of, um, of, of them in the context of the Oscars. Um, 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 so, um, Milton, why don't we start, why don't, we, why don't you start off? Just give me some of your impressions of, of uncut gems, um, um, whether interpretive or aesthetic or political or whatever you want. Um, um, just say a few things about it by way of uh, getting uh, easing us into this. The, the first thing I would want to mention about it is that when I thought of how to describe this movie to, to people, I, I said, you know how on the side of cigarette packages, they are required by law to put a Surgeon General's warning. And I think Uncut Gems requires a Surgeon General's warning at the beginning because this film is going to put you in a very stressful place very quickly and be unrelenting on that. I think the missions, I haven't read a single uh, interview with the creators. I would like to do that. Um, but I can't help but imagine that the idea that spawned them was, I think they looked at the last 20 minutes of Goodfellas, that insane paranoia. Where he's all coked up and he's, uh. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, you know what? We want to make a two hour and 20 minute movie at that level. Can we do that? And they did. It is just relentless and, uh, it'll raise your blood pressure and put you in the headspace of someone who has all the walls crashing in around them and give you that visceral experience, both from Adam Sandler's performance and also the use of sound, the use of editing and just the, the frantic pace of uh, every, every moment is filled with some sort of a noise or a, uh, a pan at a camera and you, you just, it'll never, it never lets you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, um, I was really very impressed. Um, listen, I, I knew that Adam Sandler was a good actor. Um, um, obviously, he he was. I thought he was one of the best of, of of that group that that period of Saturday Night Live. I thought he was terrific on it. I loved the fact that he could just do comedy in so many different ways. He could, you know, just make up songs that were funny and play them on. You know, the the Hanukkah song. I mean, um, these things are just wonderful. Um, um, the, the, I forget the name of the character that appears on the news that does things in opera, in an operatic, um, he, he basically sings everything, um, mm-hmm. absolutely hilarious. Um, but he's sort of, he, so I knew he was, a, I, I knew he was a good comedian. I always liked him. And, um, I also knew that he could be quite a good actor. Um, um, even non, not in comedy. I, I, one movie of his that I really truly adore, and I don't know if you've seen this one, uh, is The Wedding Singer. Um, um, I have not seen that one. Yeah, well, I really, I really recommend it. Um, um, uh, it's a lovely movie, and he's wonderful in it. I mean, and it is a romantic sort of comedy, but I would say that there's plenty of opportunity there for him to show his dramatic chops. But here, he just did something entirely at a different level. I mean, here, he his his performance in this is so good. And um, I, I hope we're going to be able to. We'll, we'll talk about part of what makes it so good. Um, 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 but um, I'm I'm really rather shocked that um, at least he was not nominated. Uh, 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 let alone 
uh, the, the the director or the film itself, or or, or even some of the even some of the uh, supporting uh, actors. Uh, the the young woman who plays um his his girlfriend um, is um, is fantastic, and from what I understand, she's a no name. She just like had like did nothing, like did like an advertisement or something, and then that was it. Yeah. Um, should probably just say for the audience. I mean, just a sketch quickly. The movie is about the Adam Sandler character, um, who is a jeweler in the jewelry district in the in the in the diamond district in New York. But and this is one of the really things about the movie. He's a very specific niche kind of jeweler. He because normally when you think of the diamond district in New York, you think of the black hatted Hasids and and and. And um, that whole culture. And at first, when I heard about the movie, I thought that's what it was going to be uh, set. But he he is in a specific niche as a jeweler. He serves um, a clientele that consists primarily of black musicians and athletes. And so the kind of jewelry that he's that he's selling and, and producing is this kind of very over the top, gaudy, big clunky sort of stuff that that you know I think has probably been. The, the the choice of certainly rap artists going all the way back to the 80s, right? I don't know mm-hmm. if that, that's ever changed. I don't know. Maybe you know because you know pop culture better than I do when this became a thing with athletes, um, with black athletes. Um, but in any event, this that's the setting. that that That's the situation. He also has a serious gambling uh, problem. Um, and the entire movie sort of sees him trying to juggle – his sales and his gambling debts and shift money one place to the other and sort of pawn things and, and all to avoid debt, these sort of, uh, uh, bookies, uh, bookie thugs who have been sent out after him. (coughs) He also has a family. Um, things are not good between him and his wife. He no longer lives there. He's got a girlfriend. Um, and, um, and so it's just this sort of frantically paced, as you said, film about you know a day or two in this guy's life um and um i thought his performance was extraordinary and we can talk a little bit more about what why um um but but i want to pass it back to you well i would think one of the reasons why maybe one of the unsung heroes of the film i don't know who performed this duty or how collaborative it was but the uh the makeup and costuming for uh, Adam Sandler's character allowed this performer who is a, you know, world known figure. He's a brand name into himself, totally disappear into this character. Yeah. Um, I think they did something with his teeth. I did, you know, he had he a prosthetic, the, I think on his top teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of subtly changed the, the way that he talked and, and, and the way that his facial expressions work. And he had these really thick glasses and uh, kind of really unkempt hair. And he was shot at a lot of angles to where he was kind of a little bit obscured. And so you almost immediately forget that this is Adam Sandler. Yeah. And it, it, it gave it almost like a documentarian sort of feel to it. And like you, I knew that he was talented and I knew he had the gear to do drama because I saw Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. And that, uh, that film has its, its adherence. And I don't uh, know why that got hated on so much. I thought that was quite an excellent movie. Um, it is, but I definitely, I, 
I observe it as, you know, it definitely has a niche following, especially, you know, that was his first time, as far as I know, to really go towards a more dramatic performance. So his built-in audience may not have been ready for that, you know. And uh, so I knew he had the talent. I knew he had the gear. But what he accomplished here, I, I was not expecting yeah. at all. This is like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis level of immersion of just co- creating an entirely new being. Yeah. You know, so so maybe I'll say something about wh- what impressed me so much about him and about the movie more generally. And indeed it impressed me so much that it actually I, I found myself thinking about it for days afterwards. And it actually inspired me to write an essay. Um, um, not about the film, but about an issue that the film raises that I think is um, important and also uh, uh, very profound. Um, and that is, you know, the character he plays should in every way on paper be a really unlikable guy. Okay. Um, first of all, he's already, inv- he's involved in a trade that already is dirty and yeah. we're given right from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, evidence of how dirty it is. Um, the beginning, there's the opening of the movie is, uh, is actually in, 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 in gem mines in Ethiopia. And um, we always have, and, and it reminds us immediately in a very strong way, hits us right in the face of what an exploitive industry this entire precious stones industry is. Yeah. Um, um, that it's that it's done on the backs of uh, pretty much essentially indentured labor um, that that don't recover anything remotely close to the amounts of money that the that the gems then uh, sell for when they're sold in the West. In very hazardous conditions, um, um, uh, you take you, you're, you're risking your life working in those mines, and um, so it starts right off. So he's in a dirty trade. Um, he's an, a, a, a pathological gambling addict um, to the point to which um, you know he jeopardizes everything. Not just himself, but his his the well being of his his family and and and, and all the people around him, um, and um, he just throughout the movie just makes every single bad judgment that you could imagine, right? I mean, he just yeah. And even when there's a moment when he gets a reprieve, right? Something works out and he gets a bundle of money and he can finally pay these crazy mur- these crazy psych you know psychopaths all off and get some some order. He goes and takes it and bets again to try to even make more money. I mean, it's just absolutely—you should hate this man. Okay. Yeah. And yet, by the end of the movie, I was praying that it would work out for him. I mean, I was really, really praying that it would work out for him. And somehow, throughout it all, I thought he was very humanized. Mm-hmm. I thought that um, through all the things I just described. I got the impression that there was a fundamental decency buried in there. Um, um, he, he, and he, he thought he was trying, you know what I mean? He really, I never got any sense of ever of malice from him. I never got any sense from him that he actually didn't care about the people in his life. Um, um, I, I just got more the sense that here was a desperately, terribly broken man. Um, with just about the worst collection of personality traits you could have, who was just trying frantically to try to make 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 the best of it, given who he was and what he was, and so it raised for me very profound questions about um, 
just what our attitude should be towards such people. You know, I had an interesting conversation with my wife after the movie because we saw it together, and she hated him. And she hated the movie because she hated him. And she's like, this movie didn't work for me because I was glad, finally, that he got a bullet in the face, which is what happens to him at the end. He gets killed. And she and I then had this long argument about whether that's that whether that's that, that's the right way to feel about someone, even someone who's wrong, right? Even someone whose troubles are their own fault. Yeah. Do we really wish ill upon them? Especially, you know, I, I, it just raised a lot of issues for me. I really felt for the guy. It made me painfully aware of my own faults and the ways in which I've also probably put people in jeopardy because of those faults. I don't know how you feel, but I was really, maybe this is just struck too personally for me uh, in, in a way that doesn't translate. But I think that, I, I think that all worked because Sandler is so good. Yes. So I don't know how you feel about that character and what you saw as the main, what you took away from it as your main. I, I am reminded um, that tension behind the likability and attractiveness of the character um, for certain qualities and that win you over in spite of all of these horrific decisions he's making, um, you do end up rooting for his success, but you also, as an individual in a society, don't want to sanction that behavior on a macro level. And so the film and the filmmakers, uh, this, this is, this is, um, one of the tropes. Like when I had, I was working on a project once, uh, that was in the gangster, uh, genre. And I wanted to really immerse myself in some, uh, criticism of, of the genre and some academic studies of the genre. And I found a number of uh, expressly detailed out tropes. And one of them was the fact that the protagonist in the end must be dealt some judgment, must fight, uh, must be brought to justice either through the system or outside of the system, either through gangster violence or the law. And most gangster films do have that conclusion in spite of the fact that we are uh, uh, sold on their allure. And, one of the great things that uh, Roger Ebert brought to his film criticism was he noted that one of the things that we love as audiences about protagonists are protagonists that have a work ethic and have a uh, capacity at what they do. Even if it's something that we don't agree with, we respect the hustle. We respect the intelligence. And the only way that, characters like this can succeed and get it as far as they can is due to this enormous intelligence to see all of those angles and somehow survive. Uh, it is that intelligence that uh, allows him to survive way past what many other people would have happen if they were in the same set of circumstances, making the same set of bad judgments. So that kind of wins us over as an audience and we want to see more of it. But at the end, we don't want to sanction that. And so I think it was a very fitting ending. Um, yeah. Look, it had to end that way. Yeah. Um, 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 because the man simply, 
I mean, look, he was a gambling addict, but really what he was was a chaos addict. Um, um, he, he, everything he did always produced more chaos rather than alleviating it. Um, but I guess part of the reason I found it such an important portrayal was because I do feel, and you know, please feel free to disagree with this, but I do feel we are currently in a time when not only do we, are we so inclined to identify others as bad to sort of render judgment upon them, but that we think that part of what's required in doing that is to be gleeful in their suffering. Right. Um, um, and, what this did was it was it pushed you on that. It said, okay, here's a guy who we're just going to stipulate. <laughs> it's wrong and bad, okay? Yeah, yeah. And we're going to put him through the ringer, and finally we're going to put him in the fucking ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you going to feel about that? And all I could feel was a profound, I felt a profound sense of pity. But my wife was gleeful. And that's why she said the movie didn't work. Um, and I see this in a, in a lot of areas. Um, um, I just wrote an essay. It's totally an unrelated area, but but um, about um, having to do with politics and stuff like that. And um, about a philosophy professor who basically said he was going to ruin this other person because the other person had done written about things that he didn't want people writing about um, and um, was absolutely gleeful about it. Right. Mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. just raised the question in my mind. It's like, you know, maybe this is a testament to the extent to how much we no longer even have, even have a sort of a, a racial memory of a sort of Christian uh, notion of, of forgiveness. Right. But mm-hmm. sure. People deserve judgment for the, you know, or punishment for the bad things they do. But should our attitude towards them when that, when that, when those, when that punishment comes be one of glee. Right. And I thought, I thought that the film really forced us to look at that. Right. Um, um, right. By, by making him, by humanizing him so much. Right. By not making him easy to hate, despite the fact that on paper, clearly right, the guy's terrible. Yeah. So I don't know how you feel about any of that or. Well, I have, I have a pretty strong feeling about it, but it's very unique to me or, uh, I, I don't know if it's unique to me, but um, I have I have a certain unfortunate life experience where I have a very close family member whose life was destroyed through a gambling addiction. And what the film... This must have spoken to you in a way that... Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. And what I think the film does really well is it puts you in the place of a quasi-family member of that person and what it's like to be a family member of a person going down that spiral is <clears throat> this bafflement. Uh, uh, you're able to, from a remove, uh, see that all of these bad choices are so obviously bad that um, this person that you love or respect or have uh, family ties to it's, it's really hard to separate that, that love and that connection and that, that fond feeling from your judgment on the person. And it causes you to uh, not fully realize the, the true severity of the choices and the, 
and the true trajectory that that person is on. You, you think, well, I know that person. This is just a temporary thing because I've known them before, before they had this horrible spiral happening and they're smart and they're good at what they do. Uh, they're going to see the error of their ways and it, it allows you to, um, or it forces you into some sort of a denial and it's, it's only certain external events that the ones that inevitably come that wake you up from it. Let me and, ask you this and, and please, if you don't want to answer it, don't, but since there are no names involved, I, I don't see that there's a violation of confidence. Um, I'm sure you believed that this person was deserving of consequence. Right. But did you actually actively wish ill upon them? <clears throat> not, not in the moment. Uh, I, I discovered and when the comeuppance other, came. Yeah. Were you gleeful about it? Were you glad? No, about no, it? Not at, no, not at all. Um, however, I did not have the full picture at the time. There were other character defects, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, this person in general that caused uh, a, a complete reframing uh, of my attitude. But in the time I was always, uh, pushing towards the optimistic outcome. And when, when, uh, when everything fell apart and, uh, prison time came, there was actually, um, there were some weird quirks with, uh, the incarceration, um, math because this person did stuff in multiple states mm. and certain states didn't communicate the right information and, the fractions of good time in this state versus good time in that state don't add up properly. So I actually had to, uh, you know, help figure out and, and explain to two different state, you know, incarceration systems like, Hey, this is why your math is wrong. So I didn't feel glee in that moment. You know, I was still, I was still trying to help that person. Yeah. It just, I have an overwhelming sense today that, we as a, as a collective society are as pitiless as I've ever seen. And it seems to me that this bothers me a lot. I listen, there's plenty of people I think are terrible people. I don't wish them ruined. I don't wish their livelihoods taken away. I don't wish their, that their family members would weep and cry. I I know. In other words, I don't, and I don't understand this attitude today and it's being so widespread yeah, And somehow something about this movie, to me, it really zeroed in on that. And it's sort of, by creating this character portrait, it, it sort of forced me to really think about not just what does he deserve, but if he gets it, how will I feel about it? And because he does get it, um, I was, you know, I, I, I felt, I, I realized that I, what I felt was pity. Um, mm. um um, and uh, sadness, not, oh, good, that bastard finally got his. You know, I mean, I just didn't yeah. feel it, but my wife had the opposite reaction. And um, so anyway, that, that, that's sort of what stood about, out about me, and I think that that was affected by his performance. I don't think just anybody doing that character, even with that script, it would have worked. There's something about him that made him likable despite the fact that he basically does nothing good the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that that's, that's, that, that's the Sandler? Is that Sandler coming through or do you think that's the performance? Cause Sandler himself is quite, has a likable affect, right? So do you think that that's sort of Sandlerism sort of coming through or do you think that that the performance was so good? 
I, I don't think you can necessarily separate the two because there is that twinkle to him, and they they um, they humanize him in one area with this relationship with this uh, young woman, and yeah. and every detail of that relationship feels wrong and doomed, and even the moment where they try to show a loving side of him, there's like this creepy sort of voyeuristic. Um, manipulation that's happening. He's very, je- he's very jealous and, and uh, yeah. 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 And even in spite of all of those factors, there's, um, there's uh, a likability to it. And I think in that uh, respect, I, I think a, a number, a, a lot of the credit is also due to the, to the leading actress. Um, yeah. The since, people who he's bouncing she, off of. Yeah. 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 yeah since she, is okay with this behavior and find something to love in this guy. It gives us as an audience permission to, uh, you know, at least once again, set those things aside yeah. and, and continue on the journey with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about the question of Oscar nominations. Um, do you want to deal with that after we do Dolomite sort of as a package? Why did neither of these films or would you like to talk about it? Do you think with, with respect to each individually? Why don't we just do it at the end? Just because I, I think the only thing I can convey to here, I, I read an interview with uh, an Oscar voter, quote unquote, off the record that mentioned both of these films. So um, okay, the well, fact we'll that, that, that we'll person talked about both as a package, okay. yeah. Um, so let's talk about let's switch and talk about um, unless you want to say something else about uncut gems, we can also go back and forth. But why don't we talk a little bit about um, Dolom- Dolomite is my name, so. This um, represents sort of, I don't know, it feels like a return for Eddie Murphy, though he, I guess he kind of never went away. I mean, I guess he made movies. They just weren't mm-hmm. very well received, a lot of them. Um, and it was, sort of pre- it was sort of previewed by his appearance on Saturday Night Live um, after having been away since he had been a cast member back in the 80s. Um, and so I almost felt like, that satellite live appearance and then this film are sort of intended as kind of a relaunch for him. I don't know if he's explicitly said that. Um, has he explicitly described himself as relaunching? I don't think he explicitly said it, but it's definitely clear. Did you see his appearance that he did on Jerry Seinfeld's show, Comedians in Cars yes. Getting Coffee? Yes. There he said he wanted to do stand up again, right? Yes. And. The Eddie that was in that car and talking to Jerry was a new person compared to the Eddie that we've seen for a good 15 years or so. You know, there were all these behind the scenes stories about him, you know, not necessarily being the easiest person to work with. And uh, there seemed to be a dark edge to him. And the joy of the early Eddie, the early stand-up, the early SNL stuff, kind of it, it was gone. It was completely gone at some point. And then when he got in that car with Jerry Seinfeld, there was just this smile on his face all the time. And he had these loving reminiscences of his time as a stand-up and the fact that he bonded with Jerry on the craft of stand-up and referencing other comedians and other scenes and specific venues that brought out a side to him that we hadn't seen in a really long time. Yeah. 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 So the film, um, um, uh, it's not really, 
it's sort of a biopic, but I mean, from what I understand, it's relatively loose. Um, but it's based on uh, a real person. Um, uh, is it Rudy Ray Moore? I, I, I think that sounds right. Yeah. Um, who um, actually is quite an important figure in the history of, 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 um, uh, of entertainment. Um, for one thing, he is a significant major player in the black exploitation subgenre. Um, um, and growing up in the seventies, <laughs> I was very much aware of and watched many of the installments in the black exploitation drama, uh, genre. Um, um, and so when I saw this, I realized that I had seen <laughs> Rudy Ray Moore stuff and, and hadn't even sort of made the, let me make sure I've got this name right. I don't want to call him the wrong name the entire Yeah. Okay. Rudy Ray Moore, excuse me. Um, um, I realized I'd seen all these movies and just hadn't put it together. Um, secondly, Rudy Ray Moore um, is considered to be the sort of the, the, the godfather or the grandfather of all rap. Right. Um, because uh, of the specific sort of way he did his stand-up, which was kind of a rhymy, talky, very foul-mouthed uh, kind of delivery. Um, and also hearkening back to actually very, very much older African traditions. The one thing is the, is the, that he would sort of was his, was sort of his centerpiece was the signifying monkey. Um, which, if you know your rap history, um, the first original true gangster rapper, Schooly D from Philadelphia, um, did his own version of Signifying Monkey called Signifying Rapper, um, um, which actually was in the Abel Ferrara movie, Bad Lieutenant, and then was stripped out because it sampled Led Zeppelin, uh, Cashmere, oh. <laughs> and Zeppelin sued sued so you can i'm gonna put it i'm gonna put a link to it uh to the song um um uh in uh, which is from a schooly d's album uh smokes and kill i'm gonna put a link to it because because is obscure enough that i think a lot of people won't won't be familiar with this but so so more is also really important because he his stand-up involved a kind of talking rapping trash talking rapping that then became ubiquitous in rap music. Um, so the film is about him, with Eddie Murphy playing the character, um, and about how he first became a stand-up comic um, with a certain notoriety, um, and then eventually launched into, into pictures um, and creating a, a number of very well-known um, uh, black exploitation uh, films. Um, did you want to add anything just about the, 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 the film itself and the, the, the situation? Any thoughts you had? To, were you already familiar with the Rudy Ray Moore character? I, I, nowhere I, near at the, yeah. uh, just, just tangentially, nowhere near at the level that, that you were. The, the primary draw for this film for me is I'm big fans of the screenwriters, uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Shusevsky. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. They have this niche of films where they find true life eccentric characters that accomplish some sort of notoriety and not necessarily universally beloved uh, for that, uh, the accomplishments, for example, Ed Wood, Larry Flint. Oh, did they do the Ed Wood movie? 
Yeah, they they wrote the Ed Wood movie and the People versus Larry Flint. Oh wow! The okay, People so versus this Larry is a seriously high quality writing team. And they also wow. did the Andy Kaufman Man oh, on the wow. Moon wow. story. So they are attracted to these one of a kind characters, and they take you on this journey. And each one of those characters has uh, forces of uh, allied against them that want to tell them all like, Hey, you're crazy. Not only is the thing you're doing bad or mediocre or not worthy of consideration among whatever, you know, body of people make these decisions. Uh, they're also mentally unsound maybe. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, put that label on them. Whereas these guys have a way of representing <clears throat> those characters and turning them into truly inspirational figures. And as someone who is endeavoring in a niche art form myself, um, it, there's there's always a struggle, and you kind of sometimes feel like a weirdo and an outcast. And uh, these kind of stories appeal to me a lot. And um, I think Dolomite is one of their best ones uh, because Did they do the, cr- the 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 Crumb movie. No, no. Because he's another Wait. character like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, um, so were you? Are you? Were you? Have you also been a major, a big Eddie Murphy fan? Huge. I mean, Eddie Murphy was my middle school existence. Pretty much every day at the bus stop, me and my friends, all we would do, you know, every Monday morning is recite every line we could from whatever Eddie Murphy did on Saturday night live before. And then when we would, we would sneak into, you know, the R rated films he was in. Uh, we had bootleg tapes of uh, comedian, which is better known uh, by most people as delirious because that was the name of the, the video special. Uh, so, oh yeah, I was a huge fan. I wore the tape out on delirious. I mean, I watched that so yeah. many times. Um, um, and, um, you know, for me, the major draw was that this was the return of Eddie Murphy. I was really struck. I don't know. Did you watch the Saturday Night Live that he appeared on? Yes. Did you do you do you remember at the beginning when they, you know at the introduction to the show, one of the cast members actually just flat out said, um, "Oh, now everybody's going to remember why nobody's watched Saturday Night Live since Eddie Murphy left." Right? I mean, they basically admitted that they're terrible. They admitted that they're terrible, and the current Saturday Night Live is such a disastrous, terrible embarrassment um, um, that it's so too un- kind. It's so unfunny, and it's so woke in the most stupid, annoying kind of way. That's not funny, also. Um, 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 and totally betrays the edge that the show always used to have. Um, it was always countercultural and now it's orthodox, right? I mean, which is the, what could be worse than orthodox Saturday Night Live, right? Um, but it just, and I, and I'm going to tie something with Dolomite into that also that I'm, I'm really hoping it'll, this will make something happen that will break the current woke stranglehold on, 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 on popular culture. Um, but so I was already struck watching the Eddie Murphy. It wasn't just that the cast member admitted that they were basically terrible. Um, but then watching Eddie Murphy reprise a lot of these roles, you realize, okay, he's just redoing shit he already did. And it's better than anything that's been outside of our live for 15 years. Right. I mean, it, it was really, I'm actually surprised SNL did it. I mean, they really 
expose themselves, I think. And please, of course, feel free to disagree. But this is just my impression. Um, and so then going into the Dolomite, I'm like, okay, Eddie Murphy's coming back. And then seeing him play Dolomite and the fact that the Dolomites, that, 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 that Wood's routines were so filthy and politically incorrect and so reminiscent of the ways in which Eddie Murphy's stand-up was right, right, yeah. politically incorrect that I was just really blown away from it. And similar to Uncut Gems, here's something where I would say is a similar, a bit, maybe a bit of a similarity. Um, the Eddie Mur- the character Eddie Murphy is so likable that it disarms, it disarms any discomfort that audiences might have with the language and stuff, because we're very puritanical now. I mean, that kind of comedy don't fly today. Um, um, I mean, you can do it, but you just get huge, you know, condemnation and also sort of that, you know, um, um, and um, so I really was kind of blown away for, for all those sorts of reasons. Um, um, I don't know how you feel about this SNL performance and then him going into this. And what, what do you think just in general about what this represents? Well, there's there's one aspect of Dolomite that I I cannot go without mentioning. So let me set that aside for a second sure. and get. But on the SNL thing, I I largely agree with your critique of SNL in general. I think the exception is maybe once every three weeks or so. There's one sketch that has some humor and goes viral, but. Um, they're, over the past like ten years or so, they seem to have at least one redeeming performer surrounded by a bunch of people that you can't stand. And like right now, for me, that person would be Kate McKinnon. I I basically adore anything she does, and even when she's in a terrible sketch, uh, she elevates the sketch. But like just last week, I, I actually thought they had a good episode with Adam Driver last week. Um, most of that was really well done, and Kate McKinnon. I don't know if you saw that one, but Kate McKinnon plays the devil, uh, welcoming Alan Dershowitz to his just rewards. Um, and, and also, uh, bringing people like, uh, Mark Zuckerberg there. Um, so it, it was, it was delicious and she's great. Um, but in general, I agree with you. If you compare the last 10 years or so of just your median sketch, uh, compared to what they, uh, were able to deliver during the Eddie Murphy years is <laughs> not even comparable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so why don't you give your impressions of, of Dolomite is my name. I've, I've said some things about it. Why don't you say some things about it? What, what did you think? The one thing stood that, out to you. Yeah, the one thing we haven't mentioned yet, and it's on a very parallel track to Eddie Murphy's story with this film, and that is Wesley Snipes. Oh God, is he good with this film? God, is he good in this? Talk, talk about a guy who uh, had some original warmth and uh, beloving feelings uh, to audiences in general. Who somewhere along the way lost his way, and in fact, you know, the the one thing that you know people will remember about him is like, hey, ain't that the guy that cheated on his taxes? And didn't he used to do good movies and like nobody I hired him? Know, I didn't even know that about that. He's been such a non-entity in my consciousness that I didn't even know that. The last thing I re- my memory of him is entirely New Jack City, right? 
Okay, um, yeah. um, 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 which I love, which is a great movie. Um, um, but anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, well, one other thing that he's he's related to is uh, something we may talk about in the future, and that's uh, Blade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, so just like Eddie Murphy, he has this long pause between very uh, well-regarded performances, and this one is stunning. He. He's almost creates, unrecognizable. Totally like, unrecognizable. And his speech um, is totally un, out of... Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen him do something like this. His 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 body language and affectations. Um, I don't... I've never seen any footage of the real person that he's portraying. So I don't know if he's just doing a really uncanny, great synthesis of what that person was like, or if he just created a new character out of whole cloth. I'd like to find that out. I'm sure a commenter will let me know. Um, but he is riveting every moment that he's on screen. Um, and Listen, I a- knew he could do comedy because White Men Can't Jump is a hilarious movie. Him and yeah, Woody yeah, Allis- yeah. Him and Woody Allison yeah. are just wonderful in it. But this and was hilarious and completely against type. He yes, was almost yes. a feat. I mean, it was bizarre. Yes, yes. It, it was weird. And he's such a macho kind of – I always think of him as extremely manly. Yeah, um, and in this, I mean, if I hadn't been told it was Wesley Snipes, I think I might have not even realized it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he brings the the antagonism that all of these other uh, films from that screenwriting duo do. But like with Larry Flint, it's the state that's coming yeah. down on him. Whereas this character is 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 sort of a collaborator unwillingly brought in and uh he has this hilarious dismissive attitude and we're we're identifying with the eddie murphy dolomite character so much normally we might uh feel some sort of antagonism towards this guy and he's just adorable you want to spend more time with him and i i just thought he was he was fantastic yeah no i i agree with that and um um let me ask you this. So, so, so this is what the point I was going to make um, regarding this film and its relationship to Eddie Murphy and to comedy. Here's what I'm wondering. Does this film, in a sense you could say, you know, if you were doing this premeditatedly, it would be very clever, right? So you're doing a film that's essentially a period piece about a major figure in the black, a significant figure in the black exploitation genre, um, a very uh, uplifting story, uh, a man who seemed to be fundamentally decent in a very serious way. Um, I kept waiting in the movie for his fall in the sense of that he was going to, the fame would get to him and he'd turn into an asshole. Never happens. His mm-hmm. loyalty is, is remarkably at, is an admirable. Um, he will give anybody a chance. He will never throw anybody under a bus. And from what I understand, that's relatively true to the, to the, to the, to the actual man. Um, but the comedy is absolutely filthy and it's sexist. And yeah. it's, you know, racist, you know, I mean, with all the, 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 the over the top kung, yeah. kung fuism and all that sort of thing, right? I, I have a question for you on that. Yeah. Since you're much more familiar with this uh, figure than I am, the film takes the attitude that these guys are kind of in on the joke and, and, and regard those elements as kind of 
uh, comedic and, you know, they're just playing fun with it. But is that really what the attitude was at the time? Uh, you mean in terms of, you know, you, are you, are like you asking content. whether this sort of black exploitation was self-aware and, and ironic? No, that like, for example, there's a scene where um, there's a, a love scene where Dolomite is trying to, you know, portray his prowess and it's, it's played off as just like, okay, we all know this is ludicrous. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to just go with it. We're going right. to pretend that this and ham is ham it up. They do it in a way. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I do know that the, 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 the real man and the Rudy Ray Moore, I mean, he knew he, he wasn't under the impression that he was making, tri- you know, triple A level <laughs> films. I mean, he was not, I mean, he was not stupid or unself-aware. Um, um, he was, he was, he, he was having, he was doing what he found to be fun and, and, and rewarding. Um, um, and, um, um, and, and what I do know, um, from what I've read, um, and from what I remember is that the, the fundamental decency of the man that, that Murphy communicates, um, is, is generally, uh, said to be true of the man in real life. Um, um, I thought the 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 actress who played uh, the 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 woman that comes into his circle that he that he meets in a bar when her when his husband when her, the woman's husband basically leaves her um, and and she's very overweight and and sort of you know uh, exactly not who you would think um, would be a comedic performer and Eddie Murphy just totally boosts her. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean the character is booster and and she winds up being a tremendous talent. Um, yeah. um, I thought that was very powerful and well done. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely to, want to see yeah. her in more things. I've, I've never seen her before. Yeah. I'd like to see her in more things too. I, I, I really liked her. Um, and I love that. The, I forget the name of the actor, but he, he was in hot tub time machine, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. He yeah. was in this too. And he was wonderful. Um, um, Robinson, I think is his last name. I, I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. Um, but anyway, um, tell me what you think about this. Um, Look, I don't want to go so far, and it would be false to say that, you know, you can't do filthy, sexist, homophobic comedy anymore, because obviously you can. I mean, Dave Chappelle is out there insulting and offending everybody, and, 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 and you know, and there are others. Um, but one does it today to massive public disapproval, and unless one is, has incredible fortitude and enough of a, of a platform like a Chappelle or a Ricky Gervais has, you're going to get canceled for it. You just are right. And, um, um, that wasn't true, obviously in the seventies and eighties. I mean, you, you know, I guess what I'm asking you, Milton is, do you think that Eddie Murphy coming back to Saturday Night Live, Eddie Murphy doing this movie about this particular character, do you think we may be seeing motion in the direction back of, Allowing the our society and culture allowing comedy to be no holds barred again, such that we could have a new generation of Sam Kinnison's and Andrew Dice Clay's and and Howard Stern's of the old Howard Stern and sort of or or do you think that it won't have that sort of efficacy? I think that that trajectory is is going to happen, and I. I think it may be for a few adjacent but slightly different reasons. Please, I please explain. I used to go to open mic comedy nights a lot in the like in the early aughts. Um, there was a really great scene here in Houston. Houston was home to one of the best venues for recording live 
studio audience uh, al- comedy albums. There was just something about the acoustics and the density of the crowd. So like some of Mitch Hedberg's albums were recorded there. And um, so I'm very familiar with uh, the vibe in a open mic night and an established act night. And I, I haven't gone in a, a while and I've gone to a few recently and I felt that there was this tension in the audience that never existed before. Every time uh, a, a comedian would bring something out there and you, you've got that, that visceral moment of laughter that's, that's, that's in your pipe and you're ready to release it. And that release, that joy is what comedy is all about. I could feel everyone in the room at certain points quickly put, hitting pause on themselves and, and, and going to the mental spreadsheet of like, okay, wait a minute. Is this okay to laugh at? Did, did this, did this cross the line? Am I, am I going to be a bad person for sanctioning this particular joke? And just for a second, I could feel that that pause and then the relief when everyone did uh, decide like, okay, yeah, we're good with this. This is cool. We're fine. Um, that sort of tension I never really felt in uh, stand-up comedy joints uh, a long time ago. Um, only I only felt those sort of things like after the moment that someone clearly went too far and you're like, oh, wow, that guy went too far. That's crazy. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm assuming I shouldn't have assumed this. Um, and so I'm just going to ask you, um, um, do you think comedy should be no holds barred? Stand up comedy should be no holds barred. Absolutely. Like, um, I, I reveled in, uh, and, and of course the, the experience for every individual is going to be to a certain, uh, you know, you're inevitably going to find someone that, you know, quote unquote, offends you in some sort of fashion that you like, uh, there was a really famous comedian, uh, that, uh, died tragically young uh, and had a big following in Texas. And the guy's material just wasn't for me. I found his material to just be a recitation of, uh, racial, uh, cliches and his audience, Loved him for whatever reason. I'm not judging that audience uh, at all. Um, it didn't. It didn't work for me. I'm not going to say that that guy should, you know, not do comedy. Uh, he just wasn't for me. Um, and like even the even the Michael Richards thing, which was clearly um, idiotic and wrong. I, I felt I understood the environment that that sort of thing came from. Uh, because there was this no holds barred attitude in comedy, especially, especially at open mic nights. You, you, you sort of, I think everybody went into those experiences, uh, with a certain, you know, granting a certain amount of latitude to people. And I think audiences now are tired of that feeling of restraint, um, and are looking forward to, uh, you know, not feeling judged themselves as an audience member. And, you know, I don't think you're necessarily going to have the same kinds of figures that you cited, like, you know, Sam Kinison or Andrew Dice Clay or whatever. But I, I think you, you will. F- uh, or a much older Red Fox or Richard Pryor. I mean, right, right, right. I mean, this stuff was filthy. It was very much on the edge. It was very, I mean, racially objectionable. I mean, and all. 
the irony, of course, is that back then the plight of all these groups was actually far worse than it is today. And yet mm -hmm. people then were not outraged about this humor in the way that people today are, which is just so true across the board of so many things. I find the temperature and the volume of protest today completely incommensurate with the actual condition of the people who are, who are sort of voicing it because I have a good enough memory to remember what things were like. You know, I remember when the only women in offices were secretaries, right? Um, um, so, the, and yet you could make jokes in the seventies, right? Um, um, and it's not as if there wasn't a powerful feminist movement in the seventies, right? There was, but there wasn't this kind of um, um, public censoriousness. I really worried, and it was just a few years ago, I think, when this Hannah Gadsby Nanette dropped. I really thought, okay, comedy's finished. <laughs> like if this now, right, this now is what's going to pass for comedy, right? Um, and then some of the other sort of, you know, really bad woke comics that just are not funny at all, right? Um, um, and who they kept trying to foist on everyone to try to get people um, to like them, uh, even though they didn't. Um, I really was worried. And I, I guess I'm, what I'm wondering is whether the return of Eddie Murphy, the fact that you're making a movie like this, which features a lot of stand-up, which if it was done contemporarily would get you just completely canceled, right? Whether it signals that, that things are loosening up again and people have sort of had enough about this. And it sounds to me like you think, you think that, that, that it is. I think it is. I think the greater threat to stand-up comedy is actually uh, technology and social media. and not just from the 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 fear of being caught saying the wrong thing, but um, you know the unit of entertainment these days uh, are just growing shorter and shorter, and attention spans shorter oh, and shorter. I see. And if a comic actually does land on a hilarious bit, the the temptation for that performer is going to be to get that bit out there, get it viral. And then that's how we're going to consume these things. You know, it's like the, the, the music uh, conundrum as well, the single versus the album, the unit of the uh, 45 minute uh, stand up comedy special right now is thriving really well on Netflix. And uh, there, there's an audience for it. But uh, the thing I worry about is the sessions that the comedians have to go through to be able to put those, you know, eight minute chunks into a, a larger, uh, you know, fully unified, you know, hour set. Um, are they all going to just be spoiled by just posting segments of them online? Right. Are you talking sort of almost like the, the TikTokification of comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that some of the fact that we, everything is delivered now in these tiny pieces is a problem, structural problem for stand-up comedy. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think, you know, having a unified hour that, that is consists of like, you know, seven or eight, eight minute chunks, um, that, that are thematically consistent, but also distinct. Uh, I think the temptation is going to be out there. Hey, I've got a cool eight minute chunk. Put it out there. Um, oh, I see. So that the comedians are going to, in a sense, Alter, in other words, they're, they're, they're going to increasingly go towards a shorter and shorter form. Or even the audiences are going to just steal them and post them. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, audiences have no problem surrendering their phones when they go see the likes of Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy. But for other comics, I don't think you can 
demand that of the audiences these days. Yeah. Although I wish they could, including uh, movie one, theaters. One last thing about Dolomite. About, about, I don't think Eddie Murphy's lost anything. Do you? I mean, I, I, I've, I'm, I was actually quite shocked. Um, he seems to have it. Have it's like it's like no time passed at all. Um, it's like he's the old Eddie Murphy again. It seems. Yeah, I, and that. That did not surprise me in the course of a feature film because a feature film can be edited together. Um, you just got to hit your energy moment, you know, just a few times a day. Where he really surprised me was the SNL, you know, He nailed all of those revived. Kind yeah. Of, the Gumby sequence was so funny that the other actors couldn't keep it together. Like, I mean, they were like falling apart. The, the Mr. Robinson's even, Neighborhood was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was amazing. I, I, and even the, the original sketch that they threw at the end was fantastic as well. He had amazing energy uh, all the way throughout. Yeah, yeah. So you, you are, you're not surprised that after all this time, he hasn't lost anything. I'm surprised that, I su- I'm surprised that he was able to get back to that place just because it had been so long since we had seen it. You know, um, I, I'm a big sports fan, so I'm accustomed to the, the you know the decline, and you know you know so and so doesn't have their fastball anymore, and you, you feel that in in you know every dimension of life, um, and seeing this performer seem to fade away, but then come back at a hundred percent is just I, I didn't expect it. Literally decades later, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I was kind of blown away by it. Um, all right, so let's just move on to the last thing now, and that is let's talk about Oscars. Um, you said you talked to an insider. I, I would oh, no. Very, I, I, read an, I read an interview. <laughs> okay, you read an interview. I'm sorry. You read an interview with him. So could you tell us, A, what, 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 was in, what that said, and then your take on it relative to it or your own individual take on it? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by the complete total ignoring of these two films and um, there are films that are being nominated and people that are being nominated that I think are demonstrably obviously not as good. So sure. what do you, what, what did this, what did this, what did this insider say? And, and what do you think? Well, reading and interpreting the motives behind Academy voters is a bizarre science into itself. There's an entire blog niche of award season folks who track the ups and downs of, of films, directors, uh, performers, their, their so-called, you know, Oscar, um, uh, the potential or um, uh, likelihood of winning. And it's a, it's a year round uh, game that begins with um it begins with the certain the initial rollout with certain film festivals. It continues on with the way that the film is received. Then the quote unquote Oscar campaign itself is a, another dimension. The availability that the um, that the performers and directors give to journalists and Academy members they are judged on how they go about it. And there's this um, there's this double standard where uh, in the right moment, a person being really eager and demonstrating uh, that they, they respect the Academy's uh, perspective um, 
it comes off as endearing to those voters, but then other people at another moment for another project uh, demonstrating the same amount of eagerness rubs them the wrong way. And so interpreting what's right at what time is just this bizarre, just uh, useless exercise that people try to, but to give you the two examples um, uh, for Eddie Murphy in particular, this Academy voter was a senior citizen, white male, and his, uh, his response was, yes, the performance in Dolomite was at, you know, Oscar caliber level. <clears throat> However, he wanted it too much by campaigning and doing the whole Saturday Night Live, uh, resurgence. And he felt that that crossed the line of, of like, you know, too much politicking, too much eagerness, and therefore he doesn't want to reward that kind of behavior in the future. That's okay. incredible. Okay, and then the same person said... I'm stunned. Anyway, go on. The same person said, oh yes, Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, clearly an Oscar caliber performance. It was amazing. However, given the kind of work he did before, I would never view uh, him as capable of that sort of thing. So this is really just his proof, proof of concept. And so now that he's demonstrated he can do something like this, then I'll consider him the next time around. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just the like prejudging and th- these, these inconsistent criteria that they put on everyone is just such a frustrating exercise. And when you go back and you look at the performances in the films that win the award in a given year, it's, and you compare it to the other things that were available. It's always just beyond maddening. You know, this just causes me to, before you get to your own um, uh, impressions or, or hunches, this does sort of strike me, you know, and it's, it's perfectly believable to me that all the people who vote, um, are equally whimsical and and uh, 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 just sort of you know um, um, capricious. And I wonder, I wonder why on earth do the awards have any significance? Then <laughs> you know what I mean. In other words, if that's the sort of thing, the basis. Well, why the hell does anybody give a shit whether they got to get, get an Oscar or not? You know what I mean? I mean, you know what I mean. And sort of, in other words, if that's the kind of decision making that's involved, right, right, then why does it carry any weight with anybody? It's very strange, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I, I mean, the the thing is, is I, I personally, I, I still am enraptured by the whole pomp of it and the tradition of it, and. Every year, I feel like there's at least one of these awards. It's perfectly timed. It's going to go to the right person for the right thing. And I, I'm just going to enjoy that. And I'm going to just justify my uh, support of this institution and in, in viewing this. And it is a celebration of movies. And even the folks that I disagree with, they are voted on by peers and – in every category, there's at least one person that I think totally deserves it. Yeah. So I, I look, I think that there's plenty of deserving in this, in this crop. Right. I mean, I think, I think once upon a time, Hollywood is, is deserving. I think Irishman is deserving. I think 
Jojo Rabbit is deserving. Jojo Rabbit is, I could say, is one of the best movies I've seen in a decade. I mean, I was blown away by Jojo Rabbit. Um, um, but I just found this surprising. So what's your hunch? I mean, do you think that basically both of these films just died a death by a thousand cuts of these kinds of whimsical, bullshitty kind of reasons? Or do you have a hunch that there was something else, maybe an undercurrent or something that, that prevented them from being considered? I, I don't have a good hunch on this year in particular because this is a really uh, strange year. And I think the, the institution of the Academy, they are at least um, absorbing some criticism. Whereas back in the eighties and nineties, they just, they did what they did and uh, tough shit. Um, whereas now they are at least trying to, uh, respond to a certain criticism, some categories, like several years ago, the documentary category changed its rules and, uh, you have a lot better options now. Um, and this year, like the fact that Joker somehow is the top nominated film, just, it indicates a year that the, all of these weird criteria that they can, they don't know what to think anymore. And it's just, it's just pure chaos. Like I think a film like 1917 in if, if that kind of film were even possible in the nineties um, or the early aughts, that would be a clear, obvious, you know, nomination hoarding, you know, 14 nomination clear front runner for the award. And now it may win, but there's, there are other factors at play. Yeah. And I think the whole game of, you know, sleuthing out what Oscar voters think is uh it's it's just become really hard in the past the past few years. And I think they're still in a transition and I I think they are making some improvements and making some better choices in a lot of places. Uh but it's how, still how you, you said tra- how would you characterize the transition? Well, from I think what, from what to what? Well, in in the best picture race in particular, um, and well, in a number of categories, I, I do think that, uh, the year that the, the nominations came out and were entirely, uh, every one of the top five categories was a hundred percent white and the, the hashtag Oscar so white, uh, came about. I think, you know, these are Hollywood liberals and they, they want to feel, uh, woke and they want to feel um, responding and legitimately invested in some of those choices and they quickly turned on a dime and made made substantial efforts to empower creators of other ethnicities other races and put put money and prestige projects in the hands of the kind of people that they normally wouldn't and it it has paid off and there are there are a lot of perspectives um, and uh, films that never would have even been made, I think, yeah. uh, at the at the level that they are being made at now because of that pivot. And now that we are in that era, I think um, they're still figuring out, you know, they're still figuring out what what is quote unquote an Oscar film because. And all, the other thing they did, you know, they increased the the category from five to ten, 
uh, 10 maximum nominees. And back when there was only five, you know, the kind of film that would get into that short of a short list, you know, had to fit only certain criteria. They could only consider hard drama that you could never get something like a, uh, like a Joker or, or something like Dolomite. Yeah. You just, there, there'd be no chance of something like that back yeah. then. But nowadays with the, with the wider set, they, it's, it's, it, you know, it's at least conceivable that these would be legitimate contenders. Yeah. 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 It's interesting though. There's what you said in, in terms of what you said, that there's a certain irony then in the fact that, um, you know, the, the hashtag Hollywood so white and that they're, they're, they're really trying to move away from that, that this year we have an, a, a pretty much all black movie um, about a great classic um, um, black figure from the seventies and from this, this, this black genre that completely got ignored. Um, 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 but I think you're probably right in that, you know, there may not be much there there in terms of because the, the process is so haphazard and because there's so many variables that come to play and because, you know, you don't know what the basis these people are voting on and that it, there probably isn't any sort of significance to it. Um, and there's also, there's also one other key prejudice in the minds of the voters, which is they are reluctantly embracing digital delivery and studios like Netflix because Dolomite was made by Netflix. The Irishman was made by Netflix. And even as short as three years ago, that would have been uh, inconceivable. You know, we're not going to, we're going to, we're not going to empower these guys. These are, these guys are taking away our game. Right. Um, Right. So, well, I hadn't um, even thought of that angle of it, but yes, of course. Yeah. Now, of course, the Irishman is nominated for a number of things. Yes. So, yes. Um, 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 apparently, that's not completely disqualifying, but it makes perfect sense. Um, that you know, Amazon and and not and 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 Netflix as studios are 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 are, are direct competitors with Hollywood, and 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 the Oscars mm-hmm. is is a Hollywood is a Hollywood thing. So that, that, that it's makes- not it's not disqualifying, but I do think that if everything else was completely the same about the Irishman and it had been released by Warner brothers in movie theaters first, it would be a no doubt best picture winner not even, you know, it would be the favorite. Yeah. You wouldn't even think about it, but the fact that it's coming from that gives yeah. the the community a, a, a ding against it. Yeah. 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 No, I agree with that. Um, um, it's very interesting. Um, so I, I guess we can sort of wrap wrap up. Um, um, there's other movies we want to talk about that I'm hoping that we'll do future installments on. Um, um, I thought maybe you could um, talk a little bit just before we close about some what, what upcoming projects you've got doing going on and, and anything that you'd like to promote. I appreciate that. I've got one project that I did last month that's very pertinent to our discussion here. I was inspired by a film critic that I really love, David Ehrlich. One of the things he does every year is he does a video supercut of the best films of the year. And he he has this really cool format that he does. You he made one cl- yourself, didn't you? Yeah. And yeah I, I watched I made- it. I thought that was great. I thought that I was made- really good. I made it for the decade as a whole because yeah. I knew I couldn't compete with David on that, uh, on the yearly front. And so I, I took, I stole his format or, you know, gave homage to it, however you want to interpret that. And I did a video countdown of my 25 favorite films of the decade and set it to music. 
And I guess we can put the link in. Absolutely. The we we yeah. definitely will. I really enjoyed that. Even though my list would have been different. I, I Sure. A lot you you a lot of you really came through that. I felt I could see you in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> really, really, really good. Yeah, and I, I'll warn the viewers that um, there's one extremely polarizing choice in there, and there's one uh, one pure popcorn flick in there that leads off the video, and a number of the more uh, snobbish film fans out there immediately turned off my video because of that. So, Give it a chance. Give it, you know, give it more than three minutes. Uh, and uh, the people are allowed to like things different from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Indeed. what about uh, what about upcoming? So I'm proud to finally be able to announce uh, that my first uh, comic miniseries is coming out probably at the end of September. It's titled uh, Thompson Heller Detective Interstellar. It's going to be published by. That's a great name. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's a private detective science fiction story. It's about a private detective that wanders the galaxy solving cases, and he specializes in cases that have more of a political or moral aspect to them. And he's noted throughout the galaxy as a uh, atheist slash skeptic, and he's starting to fall in love with a woman that's a religious academic. And this project was born in a writing workshop and a really renowned comic writer gave us an exercise which said, hey, you need to create a new property. And the way you're going to do this is you're going to take some existing person and put them in an entirely different context. And through that exercise of taking an existing person and putting them in, in that totally new context, you're going to create an original character, an original property. And so what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to take the journalist Christopher Hitchens and I'm going to turn him into a detective and put him in space. Wow. So this is basically Christopher Hitchens in space. Uh, and, solving. And this is this is a, a comic that's going to be published. Or this yeah, is, it, or this is a, a a show. It's a comic. And, and where is it going to? Who's publishing? I mean, where is it going to appear? So it's published. Going to be published by a partnership between Source Point Press and Comics Experience Publishing, and it'll be available in comic shops uh, starting at the end of September, and it'll, it'll come out monthly. First issue in September, second issue in October, third issue in December, and then soon after that, we will compile it into a collection. And is it all you, or did you, or do you have collaborate? Are you part of a? Do you have collaborators, or did you, did you make? Are you a one man band? I guess. Oh no, no chance. I'm I'm beyond blessed to have one of the best comic artists in the business doing the artwork. Uh, his name's Dave Chisholm, and right now this guy. He's sort of under the radar. That's why I was able to work with him. He's doing the best work of his career, not on my project. He did great work on my project, but he's working on something right now that's really super special, and it's going to come out around November of this year, and I think it's destined to get um, – there's there's an award. It's funny. We talk about awards. Um, the, the Oscars, quote-unquote, of the comic book industry are called the Eisner Awards, and I think it will be an absolute crime if Dave is not nominated uh, a couple of years from now. Uh, well, let's make sure to link to his stuff too, um, 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 because uh, that sounds really fascinating. Um, well, I wish you all the best of luck, and um, I, 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 
look forward to to more discussions with you. We want to talk about where the MCU is going, the Marvel Universe is going next, and the films, because Phase 4 and Phase 5 have already been laid out. We know what the movies are going to be. So I hope to talk to you about that. And there's a few other films I want to talk to you about. Um, um, I want to talk to you about Bird Box and Us, um, which one of which you've seen, and so you'll have to watch the other one. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about it. Um, but um, uh, I thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I that's a psych on everyone. I we have a postscript. Milton wanted to ask me something on air, so um, you're going to get a little uh, a little encore here. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask there uh, because he's a professor. Uh, one of the things that I've loved in previous episodes of Sophia, you've done a number of episodes where you've talked about a given uh, film or TV series, and you explicitly shift the conversation at a certain point from the direct appreciation of the work itself. And then you shift gears and you say, okay, now we're going to elevate the discussion and go to the cultural criticism angle. And that's something I've enjoyed hearing a lot about in the various episodes where you've done that. However, that's a game that I don't feel equipped to play. I just don't have the educational grounding or the vocabulary in that realm. And since you're a professor, I was going to ask for a syllabus, a reading list for some good introductory works on just, you know, cultural criticism in general, uh, maybe stuff that involves uh, topics on the intersection of art and politics, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wish I could claim that this sort of comes from any specific stuff. So, you know, I do philosophy, I do academic philosophy, and that includes ethical philosophy, political philosophy, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's one thing I do. I also teach aesthetics and so I, and art criticism. And so I do, I read, you know, Susan Sontag's and, 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 and others who, who, um, Joan Didion and others who, um, cross into sort of, of, of sort of, uh, cultural criticism territory quite a lot. Um, um, Sontag has a famous piece on camp. Um, she's got a famous piece on photography. Joan Didion, obviously, her cultural criticism crosses decades. Um, 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 and, 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 you know, she was writing for Vogue and all sorts of other, other publications. Um, and then, and then these essays would be sort of, um, um, collected, um, into collections like Slouching Towards Bethlehem or, um, 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 The White Album. Um, and I guess, you know, if I was, if I was pushed, I would say the two people whose sort of cultural criticism has most influenced me, it would be Joan Didion and it would be Hunter S. Thompson. So if you read Hunter S. Thompson's essays, that's full of that sort of just mishmash and intersection of contemporary popular culture, arts, letters, as well as politics, as well as, and I'm not talking about his books. I'm not talking about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or the book about the, about the Hells Angels. I'm talking about his actual journalism. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I've um, read a good amount of that, like Great Shark Hunt and some of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are really good, yeah. And then D- Didion has these big collections, um, Slotchy George Bethlehem, and then later um, the White Album and stuff that sort of takes you through the 60s and the 70s and, in, and sort of combines everything together, the hippies, the music, the, the, the Mansons, all this sort of stuff. Um, um, and, um, and so, but I would, but I tell you something, I mean, 
this sort of thing, I don't think really is the sort of thing that you bring a specific academic expertise to. I think it is Mm -hmm. something you do when you're interested in the intersection of a bunch of independent things that you're interested in. Um, And so I'm not drawing from any particular, um, any particular academic tradition or trail. I mean, I've read, social and cultural critics, like I've already mentioned, I've read Marshall McLuhan, I've read, you know, all this sort of stuff that, that that's relevant. Um, but um, I don't, I, there's no specific academic area that is sort of cultural criticism. That's, that's something that, that only exists in the popular media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are, there are things that are sort of related that are academic um, like cultural studies or, um, but that stuff is very heavily theoretical, mm-hmm. very heavily invested in, especially in postmodern philosophy. I have no interest in it. And I don't think it really penetrates very much into popular media. You don't really, you know, that stuff is very rarefied and it's in the academy. Um, um, what I do is really just bring together a bunch of stuff that I'm interested in and have some knowledge of independently, you know, Mm-hmm. Comics. What I know about comics is nothing. Not from it's just the fact that I've been reading comics since 1973, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I collected them. Um, um, uh, same thing with films and television. So, but I do have a philosophy background, and I do have an aesthetics background, and I do have read quite a lot of John Didion, Hunter S. Thompson. So I, I sort of know instinct, sort of how you do this sort of thing. Um, I, I, I guess that I would say that those people sort of help me learn the the mode, the mode mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the actual substance of it just comes from the eclectic mix of my own interests. And, and, and that's why I think anybody can do it. I mean, you know, listen, Aria does it. Um, um, his, that's what his whole show is. Um, yeah. Um, and the last one he did, I don't know if you watched the last one Aria did. It's freaking amazing. It's with this guy who's, who's written a book looking at Trump through the lens of the history of television. Oh yes, yes, I did yeah, hear that. One. Yeah, it's freaking amazing, right? I'm, 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 I'm uh, you know, and so I, I do. Th- I think you, I think you are qualified. Um, um, <laughs> well, um, the, the one thing I'm doing it right I'm, now, right? You did it just for this <laughs> entire dialogue, right? Um, um, but yeah, go well, ahead. The, the the one thing that I've always I've felt a bit reluctant to enter some of those areas of discussions, just in the sense that when I've heard other layers of analysis, I. I come from a point of view of being immersed in the creative process and learning how these individuals achieved what they achieved. And then sometimes there's this layer of analysis that comes in and I feel like I I'm sympathizing with the artist and going, you know what? I really don't think that was their intention. I don't think that that's necessarily, you know, the relevance that they would want to bring to this discussion. And so I, I felt there wasn't uh, as much value there. And I felt there was like maybe some, in, uh, you know, invalid aspects to it because I would think that the person would maybe disagree, but being immersed in this a little bit more, I've been finding uh, interesting analysis and learning a lot, even when it's in tension with what I think that, a, a creator may not have really intended at all their yeah. work to serve. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, look, I haven't been all over your, I have, I haven't looked through all the stuff that's in your platform um, in your, in your, in your online uh, platforms, but do you pretty much only create, you don't, you don't engage in any 
critical any criticism or or, or, or writing about um, I have in the past. I, I, I was a film critic at, when I was in college, um, and I continued that just uh, sort of informally uh, online for a while. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't done it in a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, I mean, so I teach aesthetics, and um, I'm teaching it right now. And um, what's interesting about that class is that about half the students are philosophy majors, and so they're really good at analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Other half of the students are are studio artists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a large draw for the class from the art and design side of the university. They bring something entirely different. They're, they're not really particularly great at analysis, um, but they have intimate understanding of the creative process, right? Um, um, and I find that the two of them together, they each learn from the other. Mm-hmm. And the sum total of it, is a really outstanding, is usually a really outstanding conversation. And so I think that you coming from the creator side of it, um, it's ideal to speak to someone, let's say like me or somebody else who's not a creator in the arts. I mean, I, I write, but I, I, I write more in, I write philosophy and then I write, I write in sort of the essay format. I mean, there is art to it, but it mm-hmm. isn't art. Um, um, it's not literature. Um, and so, um, I actually think that it's a sort of perfect intersection. I think if everybody's coming from the critical side, then you have no, you have no real understanding of the creative. Process. A lot of critics I read really annoy me because it seems to me quite clear. They have no idea how the stuff is made. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and if you have it all artist side, the problem there is that they're all very instinctive and intuitive, but they don't really have a great and an analytical mind. Right. Um, um, and so, and so, I think it's it's great to do sort of these things in kind of collaboration. Um, um, mm. um, um, but, um, you know, surely you have political views. Surely you have impressions and views of the contemporary scene you're in. And I just would never hesitate on, uh, to bring to bring them to bear um, on, on these sorts of conversations because I really don't think there's really any expertise. Um, there's just experience and familiarity with the culture, it seems yeah. to me. Um, and you're immersed in the culture, and so um, um, a bit. <laughs> well, one part of it, right? I mean, yeah. um, 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 you know, how do you feel? Just uh, while I've just got here one more minute, um, you know, we talked about the future of comedy, and I don't expect to say anything major about this. Maybe we'll talk about this more in the MCU, but maybe this will be a teaser. How are you feeling about the future of comics? I'm very well, concerned. I don't know how you feel about it. I'm. I, I'm I'm very concerned about one major pain point that's about to happen. And I'm actually what's doing, that? Uh, I'm actually doing a documentary that has one tiny connection to this. Um, I'm doing I filmed a documentary about um, it's going to be called uh, NCBD New Comic Book Day. New Comic Book Day is Wednesday. That's the day all the new floppy comics come out. Like I've got one here. Uh, here's you know here's you a standard X Men comic. You know, it comes in the little floppy format. It's 22 to 28 pages usually. Uh, nowadays, it costs five bucks. Five bucks for something that you can consume in a few minutes is a bit difficult. Um, the economics of comics are very difficult right now. I remember when they were under a dollar. Yeah. 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 And uh, so 
there is a huge audience right now that's learning how to read what, what you call sequential storytelling, sequential art storytelling. That's the medium of comics. And that's coming online from kids reading manga. It's coming from the young adult market. There are a lot of fantastic, like the best selling comics in the world right now are young adult comics. The best, the, the most successful comic creator is a woman named Raina Telgemeier. A lot of people probably don't know who she is because she, her audience is, you know, teenage level, but she sells a ridiculous amount of books. And those audiences, I think, are going to grow up and still like the, the medium of comics, I hope. Uh, so I think there is a bright future for comics. The pain point that's about to happen is right now the, the primary delivery mechanism for physical comic media is the local comic book store. And the niche audience they have. So they're not are, buying them off Amazon. There is that. And that is growing. And mobile device use is growing. But the actual bread and butter money that is sustaining the creators who do stuff like this. Interesting. Uh, um, is still this unit right here. Um, and then those get collected into a, a trade volume that's like, you know, anywhere from like three to seven issues of comic. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to skip, we're going to skip the floppy. That's, that's possibly going to die. And we're going to go straight to the book, straight to the book. And how we make that transition is going to bankrupt some businesses. It's going to bankrupt some economic models and uh, it's going to create some chaos for a while. I don't know when this reckoning is coming, but it is soon. Yeah. Something like this is going to happen soon because there's also demographic trends. Um, The people who support mainstream comics, Marvel and DC, they call them the so-called Wednesday warriors. The people that go every Wednesday, they pick up their Batman, they pick up their Superman, pick up their Spider-Man. They are the economic blood that allows the brick and mortar stores to, to deliver the more niche and original things, the exciting stuff. But that, that niche audience is starting to age out and, and how once that, uh, flow of revenue disappears we don't know we don't know what the next phase is going to be so, so there's going to you see a, a good future yes you're worried about how you're going to get to it sort of the in-between part is the part you're worried about yeah and, that, and, and, and a lot of people may get hurt in that in-between period yeah and that could that could risk the 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 viability of the medium yeah. Um, yeah. because you know a lot of the people that are successful right now they move immediately into writing for TV and movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm going to want to talk about this with you in detail. Um, um, maybe when we do the MC, the future of MCU film, we can also then pivot over to the future of MC, of MC, right? <laughs> right, um, right, right. Um, and then maybe speak more broadly um, um, about it. Um, okay. So thank you again. I'm going to say good night to everyone again. And um, I look forward to the next one. Me too. Thanks. Take care, man.